Hello, hello, this is the Intern Whisperer, Isabella. And I know everybody is really struggling uh, going through this pandemic. We're doing this all together in a global sense. Not any one person can say that they haven't been impacted. It's impacted jobs, it's impacted companies, it's impacted us globally with how we do business, how we spend money, how we make money. To celebrate Women's History Month, we're gonna take a little moment to step back in time and look at all of the women that have helped be trailblazers to fight for equality in the United States. And that's just so we can use this as a little breathing space. So let's look first to see what's been going on. And this has also impacted business people. So let's look at these truly incredible trailblazers, as I mentioned, and see what they have done to bring us to where we are now. Women are running Fortune 500 companies, raising money, being able to invest in women-owned businesses, and just create a whole different dynamic of who we are as a gender and how we are supporting our, our economy and our country. So Abigail Adams, it all started with even just her, but it goes back further than that, even in biblical times for those that are um, studiers of the Bible. But Abigail Adams imploring her husband to remember the ladies when envisioning a government for the American colonies. Two suffragists like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton fighting for the women's right to vote to the rise of feminism and Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton becoming the first female nominee for president by a major political party. So what does our timeline look like? Well, back in 1848, July 19th through the 20th, the first women's rights convention was organized and held in New York with 300 attendees, 1848 people. Who could have seen that? Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott organized the event and 68 women and 32 men, nice to know we had men behind us that were supporting us, attended and signed the Declaration of Sentiments. It sparked the decades of activism, eventually leading to the passage of the 19th Amendment, granting women the right to vote. On August 18, 1920, ratification of the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was completed, declaring the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged on the account of sex. That's when women got the right to vote, and it is now nicknamed Susan B. Anthony Amendment in honor of her work on behalf of the women's suffrage. In 1932, Amelia Earhart becomes the first woman and second pilot ever, Charles Lindbergh was the first, to fly solo nonstop around the Atlantic. And on May 9th, 1960, the Food and Drug Administration, FDA if you don't know it, approved the first commercially produced birth control pill in the world, allowing women to be able to have control over when and if they wanted to have children. Margaret Sanger initially commissioned the pill with funding from an era, from the heiress Catherine McCormick. So those are little known facts that you may not have known about, but yet the historic milestones continue. On June 10th in 1963, President John F. Kennedy signed the Equal Pay Act, prohibiting sex-based wage discrimination between men and women performing the same job in the same workplace. 
Even though we had that legislation, we still have always experienced these pay gaps for women. And here we are in 2020, and it's still here. The Equal Pay Act may have been initiated and created in 1963. However, we're still, we're still, so many years later, 60 years later, still experiencing this. In 1964, on July 2nd, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, and that was banning employment discrimination based on race, national origin, religion, and sex. So, thinking about that, equal pay in 63, discrimination, we could not be discriminated based on our gender, along with race, religion, and national origin. These are big milestones, not just for women, but for women of color, women that have had different religions, women of different uh, nationalities. And of course, it's not just women. We understand that. We know it also includes men, but women have a harder time getting a job. If a man walks up and they he applies for the job, regardless of his race, his sexual orientation, he usually gets the job over a woman. So that is something that still takes place now. Not as much as it used to, but it still takes place. And it's always one of those battles that women are, are up against. On June 30th in 1966, Betty Friedan, author of the 1963's The Feminine Mystique, helped found the National Organization for Women. It's called NOW. And as the organization states, it was a grassroots activism to promote feminist ideals, lead societal change, eliminate discrimination, and achieve and protect the equal rights of women and girls in all aspects of social, political, and economic life. On July 23rd, 1972, the Title IX, Title IX of the Education Amendments is signed into law by Richard Nixon. It states that no person in the U.S. shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any educational program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So when you're going back to school and you were looking for that money to be able to go back to school, this is what's covering your butt there for the women. And that was in 1972. And it's so hard to believe that it has taken so many years for women to be able to receive these rights that men were being able to have without question. January 22nd, 1973, it's the landmark Roe versus Wade decision. The U.S. Supreme Court declared that the Constitution protects the woman's right, a legal right, to an abortion. Tennis pro Billie Jean King, same time frame, 1973. Tennis pro Billie Jean King holds her newly won trophy high in the air after beating Bobby Riggs in their $100,000 winner-take-all battle of the sexes tennis match. 1981, July 7, 1981, Sandra Day O'Connor is sworn in by President Ronald Reagan as the first woman to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court. She retired in 2006 after serving for 24 years really huge, really huge for women. In 1983, on June 18th, flying on the space shuttle Challenger, Sally Ryder became the first American woman in space. And in 1993, 
Nominated by President Bill Clinton, Janet Reno is sworn in as the first female Attorney General of the U.S. 1994, Clinton signed the Violence Against Women's Act as part of the Violent Crime Control and Silent and Law Enforcement Act, providing funding for programs that helped victims of domestic violence, rape, sexual assault, stalking, and other gender-related violence. And then in 2007, U.S. Representative Nancy Pelosi becomes the first female Speaker of the House. In 2019, she reclaims the title and becomes the first lawmaker to hold the office two times in more than 50 years. 2013, the U.S. military removed the ban against women serving in combat positions. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton becomes the first woman to receive a presidential nomination from a major political party. So let's look at how women stack up in sports, education, and politics. Who doesn't love sports? Now, come on. Gender equality is not just a women's issue. It is a critical component in helping people and businesses grow. As we look into 2030, consumers will begin to demand stronger ethics, they're already doing that now, people, and greater equality from each other and from brands. So when you're buying that t-shirt or whatever that product is, people are now beginning to look behind the brand and see what are they supporting? Are they for inclusion, diversity, and equality as, as they hire? Is that what they promote in their messaging? People pay attention to this. So this is especially true among the conscious consumer, a subset of U.S. consumers who are more politically and so socially active. According to Mintel research on American values, 69% of conscious consumers agree that brands have a responsibility to take a stand on issues like equal pay for equal work. Nearly 50 years after the enactment of Title IX, which sought to end discrimination on the basis of sex, female athletes are still facing significant barriers. They lag behind men in participation rates at youth level. According to the recent study by the Women's Sports Foundation, they struggle to pursue careers in professional sports, coaching, and administration. And if you'd like to hear more, go listen to our episode where we had Ashley Hart, who is with She Plays. That is a startup company. Support our women entrepreneurs. Go look at sheplays.com. But you can also look at, listen to that podcast. We really want you to go listen to it because we talked about what those numbers look like for the women's athletes and it's staggering. Now we're gonna go look at the education industry. Women make up a majority of the staff in higher education. Yes, we see a lot of them in the classroom. They are there on the grounds, boots on the ground, and they're helping to deliver that content to people that are in school, especially in higher ed. But there remains a gender gap at almost every career level in that sector. It gets worse the higher the position is as women begin to get less promotions to senior roles and they encounter fewer rewards for their labor. Women are overrepresented at the lower half. Like I said, you're going to see them in the classroom. But do you see them running the schools? Are those the people that they hire to run the schools or in senior level leadership? That's what I'm talking about here, people. So why does the gender wage gap still occur? Well, discrimination is still permeating the pay system. Values placed on work undertaken by women, it's deemed lesser. It's causing them to end up being paid less than men for the same role. 
Another crucial issue remains in the fact that men make up the majority of the highest paid roles, despite forming a smaller percentage of the overall workforce. Additionally, while many use maternity as a reason to blame women for their lower pay, so you're gonna be out having a baby, so we should pay you less, what type of mentality is that? This takes the pressure off of employers to do anything about it and creates a motherhood penalty that could be solved through the options of having flexible and part-time work. Because women are really kick-ass people when that comes to work. They know how to manage their family, make sure that they're getting their, their work done. So when you're looking at who that employee is that you wanna bring in, choose women that have children. Because yes, their kids get sick, but if you allow them to work from home, or if they're pregnant, you allow them to have that time, they're gonna continue to work and give you more than what you may have experienced with a man. Now, let's go look at the political industry. We have Representative Anna Escamani, who is for the Florida State House, District 47. She's gonna share a story here about what her climb into the political arena has been like. So, we're gonna take just a minute, listen to her story. Good morning, Representative Eskamani. How are you? I'm doing great. I am um, here in Tallahassee right now, um, wrapping up the 2020 legislative session, but it's, it's great to be here. I am so thrilled to have you here on our Intern Whisperer radio show. And you can, we're gonna share this link with you and your staff so that you guys can also have it in your own social feed. Awesome. And I am looking forward to having you as a guest on the show later when you get out of the legislature. That's gonna be awesome also. I, I can't wait, I'm looking forward to it. So we're doing a special series and it airs tonight and it's all about women and the climb and what has it been like? What are those gender barriers, the pay gaps, anything that deals with us as women? Because I work with a lot of young women as interns inside of Intern Pursuit. And one of the things that I remind them is that you have to work harder than the men, honestly. Right. Right. And that right. even that even means even with uh, race and ethnicity, because men will have the jobs before women. So I'm going to, there's only four questions. We're going to be pretty uh, concise here, but you know, what do you believe the gender bias barriers have been in your own experience? Well, that's such a great question. And I, I really appreciate your introduction as well, because I, I think you really hit the key points. And so I'm a, I'm a young woman of color growing up um, here in Florida. And so I've always faced the, the, the gender bias barriers around my identities. And, and I think it also depends on what's happening in the world around you. So for example, my family is Iranian American. And so when 9-11 happened is when I really started to experience racial bias and racial tensions and having to also navigate that just as a you know as a child um, was very challenging because folks would automatically associate you with a group of people and put labels on you and then as someone who made the decision to get involved in civics and to get involved in politics you learn very quickly that it's a male dominated field and that um, there really is this larger boys club dynamic that you have to crack into. And um, it's a challenge because um, again, you're, you're already coming into a space that historically has been dominated by male decision makers. And now um, you come into this space as a young woman 
And so uh, first day in Tallahassee, there were assumptions about, about how I would work with people, about what my priorities would be. And, and, I, and, and I, I feel pretty confident that we've, sh we've shaken up those, those um, perceptions and we've really done the best to be ourselves in the process. But that's that constant reminder too, is to not let others change you and to really show up as your authentic self. That is so true. I absolutely agree with you. And, and I'm really glad to hear that you've had what I hope is some support from the male genders also, that they will come in and say, hey, let me help you navigate some of these channels because it's we're not enemies in this fight that we have for as just women, but we have men that can be our advocates and help us navigate, like I said, the channels. Absolutely. And Isabel, I've been very lucky in my life to have incredible mentors, including those who identify as as hetero cis men, right? So I'm I'm really fortunate because you know one of my one of my biggest mentors is my high school AP government teacher who really invested in me when I was a senior at my public high school and inspired me to get involved in politics again. So it's been a big part of my life is that that solidarity and that uh, investment from folks of all backgrounds and all genders. And then of course, as a lawmaker, some of my best colleagues are going to be folks who identify as, as men. And there's also really cool bipartisanship, collegiality among the women. And I actually serve on the bipartisan Women's Legislative Caucus, which is really opportunity for women that come together from Democrats and Republicans to find common ground on key issues. And we work together on a resolution to mark International Women's Day, for example. And and um, because my office led the effort, we presented it, but we stood on the floor with the entire women's legislative delegation. And so there, there are those moments as well that I I really work to, to find and then to absolutely treasure them and to continue to replicate them in the future. That is awesome, awesome work there. So what obstacles did you have in your own head that you had to learn to manage and maybe even overcome? Well, the first one that comes to mind is imposter syndrome, which I think so many uh, people experience, but especially women, because you feel like you're not, you don't belong in that space. You're not good enough to be in that space. You know, you're not, you're fake. You're, you, you don't actually have the qualifications to be there. And in politics all the time, women face these perceptions of not being electable. And I mean, we just saw this with Elizabeth Warren on the presidential level, you know, ending her campaign. And so I think it's really important to, to remind ourselves always, and, and I do this exercise of just, you know, I absolutely belong here. I worked hard to be here. You know, my priorities and, and projects and constituents are just as important as anyone else. And so, to really ensure that you're not experiencing that self-doubt that so many are, are pushing on you uh, and trusting trusting your gut, but always asking for guidance. You know, those are, those are some of my, my MOs that kind of help me stay firm, but it is a constant exercise to kind of just, you know, push out the naysayers and especially in politics, the online harassment is very, very real. Unfortunately, I think it's real for folks in, in many, many sectors. But speaking as a woman in politics, you know, the, the type of mean tweets that I get and the type of harassment I get is, is very is very misogynistic. It's very racially driven. And so to also not let that get under your skin, right? And to yes. lead 
different in grace and be as kind as possible to others. But I literally have people, Isabella, who always who only message me to say something bad. <laughs> oh so, my goodness. And so, you know, you just, you, you, you kind of expect it and you just can't take it personally. And I, and I think that's also a, a constant exercise to practice. Oh my goodness, I, I could not agree more because I I think it's uh, indicative of things that I've experienced as my own, as the head of my own company. Right. There is this place where, you know, women many times were supposed to be even friends to each other, but sometimes it reverts to that middle school mentality or somebody right, says right. something and I'm thinking, why? why? Aren't we on the same supportive team here where we're supposed to be going, right. yes, let's uh, encourage each other instead of like, no, I don't want to talk to you. Correct. And I, I think, unfortunately, it's been generations of pitting women against women and often in situations generated by by men. I mean, my my, you know, my insight comes from the world of advertisement where, you know, predominantly male advertisers would create ads targeting women that were often pitting women against other women for the attention of the male gaze. So we also have this long history and at least in in American society of of women um, competing with one another to get something. And, and, I, and I think that that's shifting. I mean, I feel that change in, in the last 10 years of, of more and more women pushing, pushing against that and actually showing up for one another and realizing that we're stronger together. Mm, yes. Well, and that's true of just about any, any particular community, whether it is, you know, religion, race, ethnicity, oh. gender, sexual orientation, all of those things are there. Totally. Okay, well, our third question is, how is this career path easier for women now? Because you're the first in our state, so, <laughs> or in, at least in our region, maybe not in our state, but um, I know you can speak to that much better than myself. So how is it easier for women now than um, it used to be? I love that question. You know, all of the barriers that I have faced and, and the daily stress that, that I experience, it's worth it because every day I tell myself that we're making it, we're making it just a little bit easier for, for the next person behind me. And I am the first Iranian American elected to any public office in Florida. And it, it is pretty incredible to meet young women and young men and folk and young people of any gender who never thought that they could run for office before, who never thought um, a brown person like me could win for office, never thought someone with a funny last name could win a seat in Orlando. And so I, I do think that a part of our work every day is to demonstrate to others that this is possible, that you don't have to come from money. You don't have to you know, have a, uh, a well-known name or a name that's familiar to people. Like you can just be yourself and fight for what you care about and, and, and run a strong campaign, you know, give in your community however you want to give and, and be able to break these ceilings. And so I am hopeful at the fact that we have proved that it is possible not only makes it easier for folks to follow in these footsteps, but it also helps to change people's perceptions of young people, of young, of young people of color, of young women. You know, there are many folks who did not vote for me. But after serving in office and working with them in different capacities, there's this new dynamic of respect. 
And, you know, and I hope it also inspires, you know, everyday people to look at young people in a, in a different way, to embrace women of color in a different way, uh, to think about Iranian Americans in a different way. And so I, I do hope that just the, you know, the steps that we're taking will make that easier for folks who come, who come right after me. Mm, that's good stuff there. Okay, so our last question is, what piece of advice do you want to share with other women about overcoming their own self-talk in pursuit of perfectionism? And I know you, you touched on it also earlier with the imposter syndrome. So one of the things that I end up having to do is keep positive people around me. If they're not for me, then I don't, I shouldn't have them around me. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah, keep good energy around you. Um, identify your mentors and and keep in touch with them. You know, I, I think it's really important to, you know, even if you have nothing going on, just check in with a mentor, especially if you meet a mentor in some sort of academic setting. You know, once you pass that class or pass that grade, you might not have reasons to check in with that person, but create reasons. You keep in touch with your mentors who've impacted you in a positive way. You never know when they're gonna, uh, or you're gonna need their advice, or need their support for something. And I, and I can't stress enough the notion of just being yourself. You are perfect the way you are. And um, I constantly remind myself that I don't have to um, do things differently or fit a different mold. You know, as long as you work hard, you give without expectation, and you surround yourself with folks that care about you, you're gonna be just fine. Oh my goodness, just keep preaching. Because I actually needed to hear that message even today. Because yesterday I was in this place where I went, oh my goodness, why is it that, you know, I'm, I'm having these doubts even about myself and uh, and some of the things that, you know, I go to a few women and I'll go, oh, okay, well, you know, help me get back on track here. Because sometimes you can fall into that pit of despair and it can be pretty deep. But yeah. it is it is truly even there's there's men that are supportive too. And when you said keep in touch with your mentors, I went, oh, I forgot to do that. So I used <laughs> to do this every two week reminder, uh, you know, updates of where I am in my entrepreneurial journey. And I went, oh, you're so right. You are so right. <laughs> so you just gave me so much encouragement today. Thank you so much. Good, good. Yeah, you're and you're you know you're an amazing human being everyone listening is an amazing human being and just always remind yourselves that we, we each have a really special place to play in this earth and um, I just feel so so grateful to be surrounded by people like you every day so keep it up keep it up oh, Orlando <laughs> well um, I know that this is really short we have some other women that we're gonna have as guests also on the show so be sure to you know follow along with some of their stories one is a woman that is um, she has to get it clear to her marketing department but at a major college here and she's a VP in auditing and it's been a climb it's been a climb for her also but then we have an, another athlete so we're looking forward to getting those stories out there and getting more awareness just because you know we are not alone I that's awesome I can't wait to hear to hear her story as well 
Well, you have a lovely day and go in there and fight for all of those justices and good things that we need to have in our community. I know we're keeping it pretty uh, neutral as it relates to any of the political sides of things, but um, I know you're doing an awesome job. I follow you on your social feeds and you know I'm really excited about all of the good work that you're doing. Thank you. Right back at you. Can't wait to see you. Okay, you take care and have a wonderful day and stay hydrated in that room. (laughs) (laughs) I will. Thanks so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. So as we're beginning to look more deeply into women that are in the political realm, it's evident that more women are now being elected to legislatures across the world. Women hold 25 to of the parliamentary lower house seats, about 21% of ministerial seats compared to 24 and 19% respectively last year, since 2020 to 2019 people. While there is a long way to go, improving political empowerment for women typically corresponds with increased number of women in senior roles in the labor market. Women are a vital and integral part of building strong communities and equal participation of women in elective office is crucial to a fair and equitable democracy. By running for office, women shape laws, policies, and decision-making in ways that reflect their interests and needs, as well as those of families and communities, because we are a more nurturing gender. And so we see that in the bills, the, pro- the programs that are brought out here, it is really geared towards our, our world, our community locally, but also on a global level. In 1979, women held only 3% of the seats in the U.S. Congress. Today, the share of seats held by women is almost eight times larger. That's almost 24%. And women are a powerful force in the electorate, informing policymaking at all levels of government. Although women have become increasingly active in the U.S. politics, the majority of members of Congress are still male. If the current rate of progress remains the same, Women will not reach parity with men in the U.S. Congress till 2108. That's a wait of 88 years, people. So let's take a moment and listen to this clip by Nora Ephron Charles. What she tells us is really huge for us as how we need to think as a gender, but it's just there for all of us to think. Another distinguished alumna, our commencement speaker, Nora Ephron. a graduate of the class of 1962. I had a long introduction that I had prepared for her, but I think you should just hear from her. She's fabulous, she's Wellesley, and here she is. The sooner you stop cheering, the sooner I can start speaking, the sooner it will be over and we'll be dry. Um, President Walsh, trustees, faculty, friends, noble parents, and dear class of 1996, I am so proud of you and thank you for asking me to speak to you today. Um, as, As many of you know, I accused Diana of having asked Martha Stewart first. (laughs) And I meant to call her to see what she might have said to you um, 
She would probably be up here telling you how to turn your lovely black robes into tents. Um, I will try to be at least as helpful, if not quite as specific as that. I'm very conscious of how easy it is to let people down on a day like this because I remember my own graduation from Wellesley very, very well, I am sorry to say. The speaker was Santharama Rao, who was a woman writer. And I was going to be a woman writer. At least I hoped I was. And I had spent four years at Wellesley going to lectures by women writers hoping that I would be the beneficiary of some terrific inside secret, which I never was. And now, here I was at graduation under not these very trees, but some not too far from here, absolutely terrified. Something was over, something safe and protected, and something else was about to begin. I was heading off to New York, and I was afraid that I would live there forever and never meet anyone and end up dying one of those New York deaths you read about where no one even notices you're missing until the smell drifts out into the hallway weeks later. And I sat here thinking, okay, Santa, this is it. This is my last chance for a really terrific secret. Lay it on me. And she spoke about the need to put friendship over love of country, which I must tell you had never crossed my mind one way or another. <laughs> I want to tell you a little bit about my class, the class of 1962. When we came to Wellesley in the fall of 1958, I told this to the Wellesley College News, there was an article in the Harvard Crimson about the women's colleges, the Seven Sisters. It was one of those stupid, mean little articles full of stereotypes like girls at Bryn Mawr wear black. We were girls then, by the way. How long ago was it? It was so long ago that when I was here, Wellesley actually threw six young women out for being lesbians. It was so long ago that we had curfews. It was so long ago that if you had a boy in your room, you had to leave the door open six inches exactly. And if you closed the door, you had to put a sock on the doorknob. In my class of, I don't know, 375 young women, there were six Asians and five blacks. There was a strict quota on the number of Jews. Tuition was $2,000 a year. And in my junior year, it was raised to $2,250, and my parents practically had a heart attack. How long ago was it if you needed an abortion, you drove to a gas station in Union, New Jersey with $500 in cash in an envelope, and you were taken blindfolded to a motel room and operated on without an anesthetic? On the lighter side, and as you no doubt read in the New York Times Magazine, I may have been flabbergasted to learn there were the posture pictures. We not only took off most of our clothes to have our posture pictures taken, we took them off without ever even thinking, this is really weird. Why are we doing this? Not only that, we had speech therapy. 
I was told I had a New Jersey accent I really ought to do something about, which was a shock to me since I was from Beverly Hills, California and had never set foot in the state of New Jersey. <laughs> Not only that, we were required to take a course called Fundamentals. Remember Fundamentals? It was called Fundies. And we were taught, I'm not kidding, how to get in and out of the back seat of cars. Some of us were named things like Winky. We all parted our hair in the middle. How long ago was it? It was so long ago that among the things I honestly cannot conceive of life without that had not yet been invented, we didn't have pantyhose, lattes, Advil, pasta. There was no pasta then. There was only spaghetti and macaroni and lasagna. I sit here writing a speech on a computer next to a touch-tone phone with an answering machine and a Rolodex. There's a bottle of Snapple on my desk I couldn't live without. Well, you get the point. It was a long time ago. Anyway, as I was saying, the Crimson had this snippy article. And it said that Wellesley was a school for tunicata. Tunicata apparently were small fish who spend the first part of their lives frantically swimming around the ocean floor, exploring their environment, and the second part of their lives just lying there breeding. It was mean, but it had the horrible ring of truth. It was one of those do not ask for whom the bell tolls things. And it burned itself into our brains. Years later, at my 25th reunion, one of my classmates mentioned it, and everyone remembered what tunicata were, word for word. My class went to college in the era when you got a master's degree in teaching because it was something to fall back on in the worst case scenario, the worst case scenario being that no one married you and you actually had to go to work. As this same classmate said at our reunion, our education was a dress rehearsal for a life we never led. Isn't that the saddest line? We weren't meant to have futures, we were meant to marry them. We weren't meant to have politics, or careers that mattered, or opinions, or lives, we were meant to marry them. If you wanted to be an architect, you married an architect. Known ministrari said, ministrari, you know the joke, not to be ministers, but to be ministers' wives. <laughs> I've written about my years at Wellesley, and I don't want to repeat myself any more than is necessary, but I do want to retell one anecdote. I'll tell it a little differently in case you read it. Um, during my junior year, I was engaged for a very short period of time and I thought I might transfer to Barnard my senior year. I went to see my class dean for advice, and she said to me, let me suggest something. You've worked so hard at Wellesley. When you marry, take a year off. Devote yourself to your husband and your marriage. 
Well, it was a stunning piece of advice to give me because I had always intended to work after college. My mother was a career woman, and all of us, her four daughters, grew up understanding that the question, what do you want to be when you grow up, was as valid for girls as for boys. Take a year off being a wife. I always wondered what I was supposed to do in that year. Iron? <laughs> I repeated the story for years as proof that Wellesley wanted its graduates to be merely housewives. But I turned out to be wrong, because years later I met another Wellesley graduate who had been as hell-bent on domesticity as I had been on a career. And she had gone to the same dean with the same problem. And the dean had said to her, don't have children right away, take a year to work. And so I saw what Wellesley wanted was for us to avoid the extremes, to be instead that thing in the middle, a lady. We were to take the fabulous education we had received here and use it to preside at a committee meeting or at a dinner table. And when two people disagreed, we would be intelligent enough to step in and point out the remarkable similarities between their two opposing positions. We were to spend our lives making nice. Many of my classmates did exactly what they were supposed to when they graduated from Wellesley. And some of them, by the way, lived happily ever after. But many of them didn't. All sorts of things happened that none of them expected. They needed money so they had to work. They got divorced, so they had to work. They were bored witless, so they had to work. The women's movement came along and made harsh value judgments about their lives, judgments that caught them by the surprise because they were doing what they were supposed to be doing, weren't they? The rules had changed. They were caught in some sort of strange time warp. They had never intended to be the heroines of their own lives. They'd intended to be, I don't know, first ladies, I guess, first ladies in the lives of big men. And they ended up feeling like victims. They ended up, and this is the really sad part, thinking that their years in college were the best years of their lives. Well, why am I telling you this? It was a long time ago, right? Things have changed, haven't they? Yes, they have. But I mention it because I want to remind you of the specific gravity. American society has a remarkable ability to resist change or to take whatever change has taken place and attempt to make it go away. Things are very different for you than they were for us. Just the fact that you chose to come to a single-sex college makes you so much smarter than we were, I cannot tell you. We came because that was what you did. That was the choice then. If you were bright and a woman, that was where you went, to one of the Seven Sisters schools. The college you're graduating from is a very different place from the place I went to. Many things caused Wellesley to change. 
but it did change, and today it's a place that understands its obligation to women in today's world. The women's movement has made a huge difference, and you are the lucky, lucky beneficiaries of it. There are women doctors and women lawyers. There are anchor women, although most of them are blonde. <laughs> but at the same time, the pay differential between men and women has barely changed. Don't forget this. In my own business, in the movie business, there are many more of us who are directors. But it's just as hard to get a movie made about women as it was 30 years ago. And it's much, much harder than it was 60 years ago. Look at the parts the Oscar-nominated actresses played this year. Hooker, 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 and none. <laughs> it's 1996, and you are graduating from Wellesley in the year of the Wonder Bra. The Wonder Bra is not a step forward for women. Nothing that hurts that much is a step forward for women. What I'm saying is don't delude yourself that the powerful cultural values that wreck the lives of so many of my classmates have vanished from the earth. Don't let the New York Times article about the brilliant success of Wellesley graduates in the business world fool you. There is still a glass ceiling. Don't let the number of women in the workforce trick you. There are still lots of magazines devoted almost exclusively to turning black robes into tents. And don't understand how much antagonism there is toward women and how many people wish we could turn the clock back. One of the things people always say to you when you get upset is don't take it personally, but listen hard to what's going on in the world, and I beg you to take it personally. Understand this, every attack on Hillary Clinton for not knowing her place is an attack on you. When Elizabeth Dole pretends she isn't really serious about her career, that is an attack on you. The acquittal of O.J. Simpson is an attack on you. Any move to limit abortion rights is an attack on you, whether or not you believe in abortion. The fact that Clarence Thomas is sitting on the Supreme Court today is an attack on you. Above all, whatever you do, be the heroine of your life, not the victim, because you won't have the alibi my class had. This is one of the great achievements and mixed blessings you inherit. Unlike us, you can't say nobody told you there were other options. Your education is a dress rehearsal for a life that is yours to lead. 25 years from now, you won't have as easy a time making excuses as my class did. You won't be able to blame the deans or the culture or anyone else. You'll have no one to blame but yourselves. Whoa. So what are you going to do? This is a season when a clutch of successful women who have it all get up and give speeches to women like you and say, 
To be perfectly honest, you can't have it all. Well, maybe young women don't wonder whether they can have it all any longer, but in case any of you are wondering, of course you can have it all. What are you, what are you going to do? Everything is my guess. It will be a little messy, but embrace the mess. It will be complicated, but rejoice in the complications. It will not be anything like what you think it's going to be like, but surprises are good for you. And don't be frightened, you can always change your mind. I know, I've had four careers and three husbands. <laughs> and this is something else I wanna tell you. One of the hundreds of things I didn't know when I was sitting here so many years ago. You are not going to be you, fixed and immutable you forever. We have a game we play when we're waiting for tables in restaurants where you have to write the five things that describe you on a piece of paper. When I was your age, I would have put ambitious, Wellesley graduate, daughter, Democrat, single. Ten years later, not one of those five things turned up on my list. I was journalist, feminist, New Yorker, divorced, funny. <laughs> Today, not one of those five things turns up on my list. Writer, director, mother, sister, happy. Whatever those five years are for you, whatever those five things are for you today, they won't make the list in 10 years. Not that you still won't be some of those things, but they won't be the five most important things about you, which is one of the most delicious things available to women, and more particularly to women than to men, I think. It's slightly easier for us to shift, to change our minds, to take another path. Yogi Berra, the former New York Yankee manager who made a specialty of saying things that were famously maladroit, quoted himself at a recent commencement speech he gave. When you see a fork in the road, he said, take it. <laughs> well, it's supposed to be a joke, but as somebody said in a movie I made, don't laugh, this is my life. This, this is the life many women get to lead. Two paths diverge in a wood, and we get to take them both. It's another of the nicest things about being women. We can, whatever you choose, however many roads you travel, I hope that you choose not to be a lady. I hope you will find some way to break the rules and make a little trouble out there. And I hope you'll choose to make some of that trouble on behalf of women. Thank you, good luck. The first act of your life is over. Welcome to the best years of your lives. When Nora Ephraim tragically died in 2012, one of the many con important contributions she made was to the blank page. It was her commencement address to her old college in the mid-90s that became the most widely shared message. And it's not hard to understand why. She addressed these young women 
with the ultimate how-to guide for being a woman, written with beauty, insight, humor, and urgency. Highlighting just how far women had come, she looked at the example of how women, if they wanted to have an abortion, they had to be driven to a gas station in New Jersey with $500 in cash and an envelope. They were taken blindfolded to a motel room and operated on without an anesthetic. She also spiked her speech with words of caution. Understand every attack on Hillary Clinton for not knowing her place is an attack on you, she rallied. When Elizabeth Dole pretended that she isn't serious about her career, that is an attack on you as a woman. Her words still echo today and one sentence rings eternally true. Above all, be the heroine of your life, not the victim. So what does the future hold for women? Well, women have also excelled as business leaders, experts in various trades, academic visionaries, media specialists, and more. But we see a new emerging type of a woman that's coming out. And these are ones that are in high school, just barely beginning to dip their toes into higher education. So who are them? Who are these women? We see them as social justice, human rights activists around the globe. From education advocate Malala Yousafzai, the youngest person to receive a Nobel Peace Prize, to the climate change activist Greta Thunberg, who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize this year, and Emma Gonzalez, whose leadership in stopping gun violence, along with the other Parkland High School youth leaders, put a measurable dent in the NRA. So as we wrap up this show tonight, we really want to celebrate all of the women that have come before us and led the cause so that we have the rights and the freedoms that we have now. And to all of those who come after us, who also are going to continue to push those boundaries and break those glass ceilings as we continue to climb and move forward. And it's important to remember that while you may not have agreed with some of these women and what their causes were, whether it was equal pay or if it was something that was race related or if it was abortion, what you should notice is that these women were out there and they were fighting for something that was really passionate to make sure that we, as all women, have these rights that we can come and do the things that a man can do and compete in this world where we are taken seriously. So tonight, we wanna to make sure that we recognize all of those women. And my shout outs for the show go to all of the people that are on this podcast with me that help make this look amazing to the video team that create the snippets, to the sound engineers, Eli and Charles, and to Steve, Ayana, Thomas, Johnny, and Sharon. Thank you for all of the work that you do behind the scenes here at the Internal Whisper. To the software team, to the marketing team, and hey, people, we are having a contest for the next Interim Whisper influencer. So start following us on Instagram. Look for us on your social feeds. And decide if you want to vote for Laura, if you want to vote for Sophia, if you want to vote for Bernie, or if you want to vote for Sal or me. But I hope you vote for one of the people that are the interns because these are the ones that are going to be coming into the workforce. And then we have our game, Intern Pursuit the Game. So for that whole game team, that's an amazing group of people there. They just throw their heart into it. Um, you're going to be able to find that game on Steam, so look for us. And we hope that you enjoy everything that the that Interim Pursuit is about. 
that the Interim Whisperer promotes, and that it's also about our game, Interim Pursuit the Game. Take care, people. Be safe.